Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Chamath Palihapitiya, the founder and CEO of Social Capital, where he invests in private businesses, public markets, and experiments with the objective of compounding capital at high rates so that he can advance humanity by solving the world's hardest problems. Chamath previously was an early employee at Facebook, a prolific angel investor, and co-founder of the venture capital business that was the first version of Social Capital. He's been in the press of late for raising and deploying a series of large SPACs and for his outspoken views. Our conversation covers Chamath's path to Facebook and social capital, his period of self-discovery, 
and the resulting Social Capital 2.0 to express his views of the world. From there, we dive into SC Emerging Managers, Social Capital's newest program to back managers from diverse backgrounds. Lastly, we circle back to the purpose of social capital and how Chamath gets it all done. Please enjoy my conversation with Chamath Palihapitiya. Chamath, thanks so much for doing this. Ted, thanks for having me on. Why don't you take me back to where this all started? I would just love to hear your story. I was born in Sri Lanka to a family that was, I think, relatively middle class, upper middle class. My father's family made tea chests. So like, you know, chests that you keep loose tea leaves in. He grew up in the south of the country. And then my mom was born sort of near the capital. And they were sort of the administerial class, mid-level to senior mid-level executives in the government. Long story short, at the age of seven, I moved to Canada and we stayed because of the civil war. And even though my parents were part of the Sinhalese Buddhist majority, my dad got into a, a little bit of an issue, and he filed for refugee status and stayed in Canada. And that's where I grew up. Very much a byproduct of the social safety net in that country. My father struggled with a bunch of personal issues, alcoholism, depression, diabetes. My mom struggled with English. But the social safety net really allowed us to not fall through the cracks. And I went to a very good high school, and I was able to go to a very good university graduated in electrical engineering with relatively minimal debt. And I worked at an investment bank for the first year out of college, where I had worked actually for the preceding sort of two years on and off during college. And I was a derivatives trader at Bank of Montreal, Nesbitt Burns. And that's really where I fell in love with taking risk and managing risk and, and uncovered that I really had a passion for investing in capital allocation. But the reality was that I was a junior person, and I had gotten a little over my ski tips. I had gotten a little too arrogant, quite honestly, because I had been doing really well and taken myself too seriously. And then my boss gave me zero bonus one year to teach me a lesson. And I was devastated, felt really rejected, and so then thought, okay, I'm just going to go back to my roots and, and go back into technology. And so I moved to Silicon Valley, and I worked at a startup called Winamp that had been bought by AOL, worked my way through the ranks at AOL while it was really deleveraging and downsizing after its failed merger with Time Warner. But I rose quickly through the ranks. When I was in my mid-20s, I ran AIM and ICQ, which was an instant messaging division. I had great mentorship at AOL as well. Worked for a great guy, Kevin Conroy, who supported me and just kept promoting me. And then I was recruited to go to Silicon Valley. I worked at an investment firm called Mayfield, very blue chip, old school venture capital firm for about a year. And at that point, I joined Facebook and I worked there for the next four and a half years or so, five years. And then in 2011, I left to start Social Capital. And the impetus to leave Facebook at that time, I had been in charge of a lot of the critical growth areas and in charge of mobile, in charge of international, in charge of the Facebook platform. So I had a really broad scope. But yet again, it was sort of me bumping up against my own psychological landmines. I was working on a project to build a Facebook phone, kind of like a competitor to Android and iOS. But instead of really just building the product, I had kind of wrapped that whole project up in my own ego. And and when I got pushback from Zuck, about the capital necessary to really do it on the scale that I wanted, I left. And 
I wanted to have a platform where I could invest in businesses, but also start businesses that I thought were really important. And I wanted to try to do it with as much of my own money as possible so as to not have to listen to others. Again, psychologically motivated from a point of insecurity. So you can see a theme here. Yeah, if we go back a little bit, so many people, after they have operating experience and land in a venture capital firm, really never leave. And Mayfield such a great one for so, so long. What did you learn in your time there that led you to leave to go to Facebook? I wasn't very excited about how institutionalized blue chip investing was because very quickly you learn that there are meaningful pitfalls in actually putting too much of your own money in the game because the game is really about fees. It's not really about carried interest. And so all of a sudden, the business is just to not go out of business. And to not go out of business, it's actually to not take risks. And so what I saw was a microcosm of the broader investment community, which is that whenever you start off small, you have nothing to lose. That was Mayfield back in the day. It was Sequoia back in the day. It was Blackstone back in the day. But if you really want to get to mega scale and run hundreds of billions of dollars and make it a business, you have to over-orient and over-index on fees and not really focus that much on carried interest. And there, the business is obviously to not take a lot of risk. It's to minimize embarrassments. It's to maximize predictability of the revenue flow to the organization. And so I just learned about what institutionalization does to capital allocation, which is that it moves it away from investing and moves it towards not going out of business. And you found that was true in venture, even though some would argue that venture is sort of at the closer end of the spectrum to risk-taking in that regard relative to management fees. It is, except the great thing in Silicon Valley is that because the people that start companies tend to be so oriented towards being able to take thoughtful risks, that the market beta of venture at the time was still quite good. And so it was really no different than any other sector of the investment landscape, which is that I'm not sure what the market beta of hedge funds or private equity were at the time, but what I can tell you is that I suspect that when they first started, the practitioners of that craft generally probably generated high teens, low 20s net IRRs. And that was largely true in venture because the entrepreneurs themselves would generate those outcomes. Now, that has changed where there are so many entrepreneurs and it's so much easier now to be an entrepreneur because of the abstractions of iOS and Android and AWS and the ad buying you can do at scale on Facebook and Google, that as the number of entrepreneurs have gone up, the amount of capital has gone up and the returns have come down, where now you're signing up for 10 to 12 years of illiquidity and a market beta that's worse than owning an S&P index fund. So post-Facebook, as you were saying, you're setting up social capital and you wanted it to be primarily your money. So talk more about how you initially thought of investing. I had been a pretty active angel investor up until that point. And so at Facebook, we created this very famous committee called the Conflicts Committee. And as Facebook became more pervasive, it was important to make sure that I was not making investments that conflicted with Facebook's broader goals. But that committee was set up largely for me because I was doing one to two investments a week at one point. And so I was a relatively prolific angel investor, although in very small quantums of money, 25K, 50K. And somewhere around my third or fourth year at Facebook, what happened was I was approached by an organization to set up a small little seed fund. And instead of working with them exclusively, I went to a handful of folks that I had known, folks that had already been on the Facebook cap table 
from very well-known blue chip funds. And I said to them, hey, why don't we pool our money and we'll invest together and I'll just lead all the investments as the GP, but I'll roll all of my capital, literally all of it at the time, which was a few million bucks into the fund. And it was a $17 million fund. And I called it Embarcadero Venture Partners because I lived on Embarcadero Road. And it was kind of a who's who, a bunch of the Tiger Global guys, myself, I think Reed Hoffman, et cetera, et cetera. And I put the money in the ground. I didn't do a particularly great job, to be honest, Ted. I think that fund today is probably like a 3X fund. So it's like a low to mid-teens IRR. Fine, not great. But I learned about the business of investing, which is different than being an investor. Everything from clearing conflicts to doing due diligence properly to negotiating term sheets, working with law firms, all that stuff was unknown to me. Managing reserves, thinking about the life cycle of how to manage risk, I learned that. And so I'm very grateful for the people that that believed in me with that first 17 million because I, I learned the business of investing. And so in social capital, I tried to optimize all of the things that I thought were inefficient with Embarcadero. The first was my capital at risk. And that was also somewhat of an accident. When I was closing Social Capital One, I had a very important call with Peter Thiel. I was on my way up to Lake Tahoe, and I remember the phone was going on and off. That's why I remember this, because I was losing connectivity. And Peter said to me at one point, Chamath, how much of the fund are you going to do? And this was a 285 or $275 million fund. And I said, 20. And he said to me, which was this, it was incredible advice. If you put in 60, I'll put in 20 or something like that. So I said, okay, I'm in for 60. And all of a sudden, because I had put in a quarter of the fund, I was able to really lock in all the terms. And so I ran a budget-based fund, but with 30% carry. I had a very favorable LPA, a limited partner agreement. And all of those, because I negotiated them on the behalf of myself as an LP. And so I was able to go to the other LPs and say, guys, I went from a fixed fee fund to a budget-based fund. I'm going to deprecate the fees in the following schedule. So we're never going to be an organization that gets rich off of compensation via fee income. Well, we will have to generate outsized returns. But if we do that, I'm going to take 30% of the carry. And people thought that that was very fair. And those economics ultimately cascaded into funds two and three, into my opportunity funds one and two. And now looking back, we have 6X funds, we have 5X funds, we've generated 40% IRRs, we've generated billions and billions of dollars of returns. Thank God I did a budget-based fund. Thank God I did 30% carry. At the time, it was very much unheard of. I think Sequoia maybe was the only other fund, but I was a first-time fund manager trying to ask for 30%. But the only reason I did that was because Peter put me in a spot where I had to make a very rapid decision to not show weakness and to show faith in myself and put so much money in fund one and then so much money in fund two and so much money in fund three. And that has been a net delta to me of at least a billion or a billion and a half dollars of compensation. So again, all very much lucky, but it did require at some point a belief that I could build a reasonable organization and I could build a reasonable track record of investing. Once you got off of that I don't know if you'd call it an institutional path, a non-institutional approach to an institutional path. Why did you decide to just not keep going with fund four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever it was? I was on that path and I was institutionalizing myself and I had recruited people that I thought could really 
build the next Blackstone. And we had this sort of idea that we were going to try to build a Blackstone of technology, multi-strat firm, but very technology-oriented, very entrepreneur-friendly and entrepreneur-centric. We had a deep operational cadence, how we engaged with operators, how we helped make them successful. So we had a very good idea of what to do. The problem was, honestly, Ted, that I woke up one day and I was like, I didn't want to build the Blackstone of technology. And that's nothing to take away from Blackstone. It's an incredible firm. And Steve Schwartzman is an incredible entrepreneur. And his team, Jonathan Gray, David Blitzer, these are incredible people. It just wasn't for me. At the same time, I was going through a lot of personal changes in my life because I was trying to really fix the underlying threads that I thought were holding me back. And if I had to summarize, I grew up in a turbulent household, and that created a real imposter syndrome and a sense of insecurity and a, and a sense of illegitimacy. And it was an incredible nuclear reactor for my professional life. That sense of not belonging or being an outsider or not deserving. But it created an equal and offsetting dysfunction in my personal life. And I had to fix it because I was not going to grow up to be the best parent to my kids, the best friend to my friends, the best partner to my wife. It was just not getting fixed yet. So when I started to address my insecurities, I went through a divorce. I really recalibrated my priorities. I tried to reset my friendships. I became a much better father. Then I became a much better business person because I was able to actually embrace what I wanted to build with social capital versus what I thought should be built or what I could build. And that took probably two and a half years of really, really complicated hard work, personal work. How'd you go about that process? That's a really great question. The thing that really happened was once I became separated, I met somebody. And she was a very successful entrepreneur in her own right, sort of a multi-generational family, had been building a pharmaceutical business for 170-odd years. And so she had incredible business acumen. And so I leaned on her for a lot of business decisions. But I also leaned on her for personal decisions because she had deep empathy and she just had a very different upbringing and didn't have my same blind spots. There's a theme in psychology, which is called repetitive compulsion. And that psychological trait actually has incredible insights in business as well, particularly in investing. And what it really means is that you have a tendency, you are compelled to repeat what you are most comfortable seeing and doing. And so when you have a psychological blind spot, this idea of repetitive compulsion just reiterates those loops over and over. And so it really takes somebody who can very dispassionately but empathetically point at those things and say, hey, why are you doing that? Or why do you believe those things that you do? Or why did that happen the way that it did? And in those two years, my reaction was anger. But underneath that, what I learned was that it's anxiety and fear. And then I basically went through a process to try to systematically unpack things. And at first, the things were super easy, meaning, okay, growing up in an alcoholic family, here are the byproducts for children. And there's a very famous book. I've mentioned it many times. It's written by this woman, Joan Wojtitz, and it's called The Adult Children of Alcoholics. But that was insightful, Ted, because it's like I could see through my own anger. 
I saw the anxiety and the fear. I could see this repetitive compulsion I had to behave in certain ways, the self-sabotage, the disbelief in myself, the imposter syndrome. And I was able to help fix it through my partner. But then the issues became much more subtle. And I would say now, four years later, the things that I deal with are much more pernicious because they are corrosive in very, very subtle ways. And the work is much, much harder. But it's this all-encompassing effort for me to talk with her about my personal life and business life and make good decisions. And then along the way, what I found are two therapists that helped me as well. And then I found two friends in my friend group who are really good listeners. I have a team of five people, but it's really led by Nat. And so I got, honestly, really, really lucky. When you worked your way through that, and so you're still sitting on social capital, what was it that you decided you wanted to do with your assets, with your business? I wanted to build Berkshire 2.0. And that was always my ambition. And the problem with wanting to build Berkshire 2.0 is many people don't respect capital allocation. They don't think it's a skill. And many people think it's not doing anything. And when Warren Buffett describes his job every day as reading and thinking, I think a lot of people think, what a checked out dilettante. How dare he read and think all day? That's not a job. And I just think it's so further from the truth. Because in many ways, what Buffett was able to do, and this is me imposing my own narrative now, looking backwards, but he was able to use capital to accelerate his worldview. And a lot of his worldview was around American exceptionalism and American GDP and the belief in the American consumer and the American economy. And so whether that's precision cast parts or BNSF or Geico or Seize Candy, he's done incredible things to move the American economic engine forward. He was voting with his dollars around businesses and ideas that were really critical parts of the American infrastructure for American middle-class success. I would like to reimagine what that means for the next 50 years. So from 2020 to 2070, how would I answer my version of that? How can I use my capital, compound book value in a way that accelerates my version of what ideas are really critical, what American exceptionalism should mean, how I close the inequality gap, how I drive a renaissance in the American middle class. And that requires deep, profound thinking and controlling and owning very critical future resources that are poorly misunderstood today, finding the secrets hiding in plain sight every day, and then putting money against that. And I find that problem-solving really intoxicating, that solving those problems can have a really important impact in the world. And so I was able to find that truth and know that it's my truth and then find like-minded people that respect that. So, you know, to be in Silicon Valley to do that job is a little hard because people want to know what product are you building? How many engineers have you hired? How many product managers have you hired? What is the last pre-money? of your company? And I have no good answer for any of those questions. Instead, I'm studying capitalism over many hundreds of years of its evolution, and I'm trying to find patterns and ideas and themes and then project them forward in my own way. And So when you take a step back and you have, let's say that's your worldview, 
and how you'd like to pursue the craft over the next 50 years or whatever it is. I'm curious to take one step down and say, okay, there's a pool of capital that you've accumulated. You can invest that with the idea of furthering some of those goals, or you can invest it in a certain way and have spending from that. You think about an endowment or a foundation and pursue some of those objectives with the spending from a corpus that's going to last for a long time. How have you thought about how you want to structure your portfolio? I think it's important to talk about foundations in the following context. I think foundations and charitable investing is largely an outcropping of Western guilt. And the reason is because everything here has to have a name. Everything is branded. Every dollar that's given by rich people has to come with a label attached to it. But when you look at the middle class in America or North America or Europe, or you look at every other form of giving in every other part of the world, Asia, it's anonymous. And people don't need the branding or the social validation or, in many ways, the greenwashing that comes with money. So I have a very skeptical view of most foundations. I also think, in a separate vein, that most of the true innovation that's going to happen over the next 50 years will be technological in nature. And so at a very practical, pragmatic lens— you're going to need to hire product managers and engineers and designers, material scientists, chemists, biologists, physicists. And all of those people will have for-profit alternatives. And so in order to compete for that human capital that can really move the world forward, to find truly scalable technological solutions, you have to be a for-profit business. So my entire worldview is oriented towards this idea that all of our capital is best served in a for-profit context. At some point in my 90s, I do think that I'll transition my focus in a different way, but not for today. And so other than I gave $25 million to my school, the school story is so interesting. I built a building for them, or they built a building. I gave the money. And they said, Chamath, what would you like to call this? The Polyhapatia School of Engineer? And I was like, that's the dumbest fucking name I've ever heard of. First of all, nobody's going to know how to pronounce it. Second of all, you're going to need 18 to 20% of the entire building face just to write my last name on it. I said, what are the other buildings called? And they're like, engineering one through six. I mean, I knew the answer. So I'm like, well, then shouldn't you just call this engineering seven? So I just find when I see labels on buildings, just so, so stupid and insecure. So whatever I give, I'll just give very silently and anonymously. I like the Michael Bloomberg model where... Until it got leaked, Johns Hopkins had gotten a billion dollars from Mike and nobody knew. That's the epitome of just class and decency around philanthropy. It's not about green mailing, greenwashing. It's not about joining the giving pledge. Now, that could also be a little bit of my insecurity as well, but you're not going to see me do it. And to the extent I do it, it's going to be anonymous. All of my money is going to get compounded in for-profit businesses where I can aggregate human capital social capital, political capital, intellectual capital to solve problems. And that's going to drive book value. It may be worthwhile, Ted, talking about how social capital fits into this bigger picture. So I see sort of a multi-phase plan here. And we're in the primordial phase. So the 0.01 to 0.9 phase. And that is about building an economic engine. And that economic engine needs to predictably compound book value. And so money in, 
then there's money out, and that money out comes with the rate of return attached in a predictable way. So how do we do that? I think about social capital as this economic engine. So we're in phase one of building this business that basically has three prongs. Prong number one is private investments. In that leg of the stool, there are two different kinds of private investments. We can make minority private investments, so that is to say venture capital and growth investing, or majority private investments, that is to say whole acquisitions of companies, no different than, say, a Constellation Software or a Berkshire. We've done four of those. Two of them we bought and two of them we built. I feel pretty good about that. Every year I'm going to try to build slash buy one or two companies in the 50 to $100 million kind of range, maybe more, but for right now that's a good quantum of capital that makes sense. But that's leg number one, and that business tends to compound at 40% a year, predictably so far, over the last decade. So it's pretty good. All of those businesses have, what I said before, an asset that I think is a very critical resource for the future, that they can be somewhat monopolistic around, that is poorly understood, and that it's somewhat of a secret hiding in plain sight. What's an example of, say, one of those that you've done recently? There's a business that I started that I'm a co-founder of, I'm the chairman of, that myself and my co-founder started that is using machine learning. It takes enormous amounts of data to price risk. So you can get PMI insurance, you can buy business interruption insurance, we will insure against future pandemics. And all of it is based on a bunch of parametric risk models that we have built using an enormous amount of data. So it's an insurance company, but it's an insurance company that's really a machine learning company. That's an example. A different example is a company that we bought, which has a whole suite of wearable sensors that is capturing enormous amounts of human physiology data. And we use them with pro teams and athletes and special warfare to optimize their health, prevent injuries, rehab from injuries, make these extremely high-valued human assets available for whatever their task is. But all of that then eventually lends itself to understanding how people in warehouses don't injure themselves, how folks who can train better, but it's an entire corpus of human physiological data never captured before in the world. So those are two examples, but these are businesses that are in the tens of millions, will grow to hundreds of millions of revenue, but more importantly for me is capturing and building data assets that are critical for the future. So that's piece number one. Piece number two is public investing. And there we have this IPO 2.0 platform around SPACs, I have an ambition to launch an equivalent platform focused on biotech. And we're exploring the idea of launching a whole suite of ETFs. And then in the third leg of the stool, there's what I would call experimental bets, ways in which we can experiment in all kinds of interesting business models that could scale up into its own business line. So one example is what we're doing around crypto. And another example is what we're doing around the Social Capital Emerging Managers Program which is how can we basically onboard all kinds of really interesting people with non-traditional backgrounds, help refine their ability to be investors, help scale up their ability to manage risk. It's great for us because the worst case is they will manage our own money and further create a predictable return stream. In the medium case, they can help us run money internally for SE or launch an ETF And in the best case, they'll spin out and launch their own business and we can have a part of their ongoing success. So once we have social capital working, money in equals money out, hopefully there's a 20 to 30% book value compounding every year, then I can sweep that money into a top co. 
And that Topco, let's loosely call that Social Corp. And now Social Corp can go and really allocate that money into these big thematic areas that need fixing. Climate change, fintech, education, political advocacy. So think of this as like these business lines over time will be these huge chunky acquisitions. Those will be our BNSFs, our Geico's or whatever. All those profits will get swept back into SC. SC is an engine that's constantly spinning out more and more money. Goes back to Topco, Topco allocates it, right? So that's how it all works together. How do you think about with Topco when the time is to start taking whatever cash flow there is and investing it in things that are, say, more spending than investing? I think it's now. And I do think that it's very important for Topco to go public as soon as we can. And just to be very honest with you, I'm very focused on trying to find a way to do this in the next two or three years, just because I think that it will solve a lot of opportunities for retail investors as well, because to the extent that they believe in this idea, I would like to give them a chance to earn the opportunity for them to underwrite owning us for 20 or 30 years, the same way our parents own Berkshire. Let's dive into SC a little more. And I'd love to start with, where did you come up with this idea to be backing emerging managers? It was really about how can we generate a predictable return stream? How do we predictably return 20 to 30% book value every year? And one of the things that I realized is that, you know, manager concentration always drives decaying returns. And the problem is either the surface area of their skill becomes very rigid and fixed, and so you force them to go out of their sweet spot, or even worse, they become risk-averse because if they have not refined their own psychological biases, going back to repetitive compulsion, they haven't yet worked on themselves enough to psychologically abstract them away from their repeat behaviors. All of those things decay returns over time at scale. And so the best way to mitigate that risk is to always be onboarding new emerging folks who won't come with that baggage. And so maybe the right answer to running $500 billion is to have 500 people running a billion dollars versus trying to have three people run 150, 170 each. It just seems like a very impossible task. And so the Emerging Managers Program is part of feeding this grist for the mill. It's about feeding a procedural ability to onboard people, give them meaningful incentives so that they want to be either part of our ecosystem or independently on their own, but have had been affiliated with us. In that model, we can find a way to sustainably compound book value in private and public investing. So as a concept, sounds great. And I know you took your first step publicly and announced that you were doing this, looking to give some capital to people in the public markets, US public markets. What did you find with just that initial announcement? It's really inspiring. It's been about a week and a half. I think as of last Friday, we had about 350 applications. I would say about 200 of them have already been sort of read. We're trying to feverishly read these as quickly as possible. I would say of those, what I've heard so far is about 100 of them are really compelling. And they're incredibly diverse. There's a, you know, I'm not going to say who these people are, but we had a, a mother of three teenage boys apply. And her application was amazing. She had left the workforce 
She had raised these kids, but she had always been investing, had always had a passion for investing. And her explanation of risk management, some of her ideas, her process were really inspiring. We had this young woman who works at a a mutual fund complex supply, and she talked about all of her psychological pitfalls and how she uses journaling to mitigate risk management issues. Incredible application. We had a gentleman who's in his, as far as I could tell, I think, in his late 30s, who has basically built up his own portfolio, very eclectic background growing up in Soviet Russia and then emigrating, just building himself up by his bootstraps. And you read these things and I don't know, I was just so happy. I was so proud. Like I was just like, these people are exactly the kinds of people that we would want to see succeed in the world. So the early signal, I would say, is incredibly strong. That's just three. But I suspect you're going to find tens of these examples. The hard part is going to be, how do we pick? And I think we have to pick, I think, for diverse ways of thinking. Because I think that if you can find camaraderie in the team, but you have people that have just a very different mindset to you, a very different background, different ways in which they've grown up. Again, I'll go back to how I started. Like, what did Nat do for me? She grew up in a completely different way. And what she saw empathetically in helping me make great business decisions, great personal decisions, were really great psychological decisions about seeing my patterns. And so these folks will be successful if there are 10 people around a table who have completely different backgrounds and as such have very different biases. And when somebody spots something that they think is just compulsively repeating something that needs to be questioned, acknowledging it and putting it on the table will make that person a better investor. And so I think what we're going to try to find are these 10, 15 folks who are so uniquely different where they're going to say, this is like a small family. I have deep camaraderie and affection for these people. And now out of just a sheer care and respect for that individual, I'm going to try to help them find their blind spots. And I think if that happens, this cohort will grow up to be great investors and they will have found a great support system for making them better business people. What's the proposition to these people about what SC will do for them effectively, other than here's a little bit of capital, you get a chance to run it? I think that there's a lot of administrative stuff that is sort of a little bit table stakes, but I think can go a long way. So an order management infrastructure, a prime brokerage infrastructure, a legal infrastructure, and a compliance infrastructure that makes running other people's capital and capital in general turnkey for them. So they don't have to deal with any of that overhead. That's number one. So that, I think, allows them to then focus on the substance of the job. Then number two is an educational framework. Again, what I talked about earlier, that building that camaraderie with a group of people, teach-ins, learning sessions, idea dinners, where they can learn the cycle of investing and in a safe way, in a safe space, can put their best foot out, present business ideas, get feedback, and learn. The third is a compensation model that will actually make it very difficult for them to decide whether they want to scale or not. So just to talk about that, the way that we have structured the compensation, 
all the way up to about 50 million, basically you take 30% of the profits and there's no hurdle. Over 50 million, we start to impose this logic of a hurdle. And the reason is because at that point, the quantum of capital, you start to look like a traditional hedge fund where folks can basically get the market beta, right? If the market beta is sort of 8 9%, you know, we're giving you three standard deviations of that. We give you a 30% drawdown before we really get involved so that you can learn the business of, of managing losses. How do you deal with loss aversion? How do you deal with, again, those psychological triggers that will make you a poor capital allocator under stress? And then we try to help you. But you are economically actually indifferent between 49 million and the way the economics work, about 150 million. So now all of a sudden you have a big question, which is if we come to you and say, hey, Ted, you're at 49 million. Let's scale up. Let's run 200. You may say, actually, guys, you know, I don't want that risk. I'm, I'm good at 49. I may just run my business, make two or three million dollars a year here for the rest of my life. And that's a good life for me. So we're going to help people figure out where in the distribution they want to be, maybe being a really good thinker, having fun, being in a camaraderie of that cohort, teaching new cohorts. Maybe that's really what you want to be doing. And then the fourth thing is that we will give you an audited track record. And nobody else does that. And so you can take that and we'll help seed you. We'll help fundraise with you. And so you can have a turnkey way of us doing all the marketing and you scaling up the capital if you do want to be that. So you'll have basically an infrastructure to learn and then an infrastructure to decide which of these four outcomes are the right thing for you. You know, instead of doing, you want to teach or you actually want to do, but you want to do in small scale or you want to do in medium scale and stay with us forever or you want to try to hit the home run grand slam in your definition and be an outside typical classic hedge fund and we'll help you there. So we're going to be supportive of any of those outcomes. And so you get all of those five things. There's a degree to which you describe this as effectively, there are going to be a bunch of people who you select and your team selects that are learning on your dime. How have you thought about cost of capital or required rate of return or however you want to think about it in this endeavor? That's a really good question. The way that we've thought about it is that we will run a best ideas book on top of them. And we are not going to allow them to run any leverage. What we'll give them is one to $5 million and they'll run it. And they'll know their P&L and we take 10% and contribute it to a pool and give it back to folks so that there is a little bit of like sharing and evening out amongst the cohorts. But then to your point, that money, best case, we're going to run 9% if we're generating 20% returns. So what do we get from it? I think we get the chance to identify talent and get them into an ecosystem. That's worth something for us. So that's now a bridge to the 20% that we would otherwise underwrite to. In fact, the reality is, you know, this year, actually, I'm not going to front run my returns, but they're going to be somewhere between 30 and 40% on many, many billions. So we had a really good year this year. So I would say we're actually getting better at scale. Our hurdle is actually going up. So the bridge between 9% and whatever that number is, call it really 25 to 30. So some percent of it is we would ascribe to identifying talent. We think that that's a really good thing. Another is that we will learn from them ways of thinking about problems, ways of managing risk, ways of investing better. And so that has some value. But then the real gap, so call that from 9% gets us to maybe 17%, right? 400 basis points for each. Now from 17 to 25, where do you get the extra eight or 900 basis points of juice? We're going to have to run a best ideas book where we're going to run 500 to a billion dollars on top of this thing. And hopefully... If we can generate 8, 9, 10% of alpha there, 
we will feel like then we've broken even. So that's kind of how we think about it. When you announced it, you mentioned that you didn't care what people were investing in. And you mentioned the possibility of doing this down the road in venture capital or crypto or some things like art and trading cards. But you're starting in US equities, which is kind of interesting because even if you find people from diverse backgrounds, it is the most competitive market for talent, probably in the the world, certainly in the capital markets. Why start there? To be honest with you, we had to start with a V0.1 that had manageable guardrails and it had a cycle time that was fast enough to justify us underwriting this as a fully standalone business unit. So if we had started in venture capital, the guardrails are relatively well-defined, meaning we know what the assets are, we know what private securities are, we know what the deal docs look like, but the cycle time would fail. You can't wait 12 years to know whether this product is successful. If we had started in crypto, the cycle time is fast, but the guardrails are completely undefined. You could be investing in DeFi, you could be investing in Ethereum, you could be investing in some shitcoin or Bitcoin. It's too unwieldy, Ted. If you look at trading cards, the cycle time is fast, but the asset class and the guardrails are indeterminate. If you look at art, the guardrails are indeterminate and the return time is indeterminate. We just basically prioritize them in a spectrum. And we said, where can we start where we get the fastest return on feedback and the ability to say it goes from that third leg of our social capital stool, meaning experiments, into one of these two primary legs as a standalone, fully-fledged business where we could see allocating billions of dollars. And so that's why we started there. Debt is another area where I think we could do some stuff soon. But my commitment is to try to get into crypto and cards and art and cars and all kinds of other things. The way you describe this as an experiment, most people think of the public markets as something, as you said, you understand what the guardrails are, you understand what the benchmarks are, maybe you're long only, maybe you're a hedge fund, but all of that is definable. How does that fit into the lens of where you came from and operating businesses and venture capital applied to this business in the public markets? This may not be the right answer, but I actually think that companies are basically just, they're all the same, meaning a two-day-old company or a 200-year-old company are all the same. The variables are the same. It's just that the weights are different. And I actually think that there are really only three or four weights that matter. And I think good investing is about figuring out what the weights are at any point in time. So the four things that matter to me are number one is product market fit. And you could have a product on day two or year 200 that has Zippo product market fit or absolutely incredible product market fit. And so what is that weight in any point in time is an important consideration. The second is the integrity of management. And again, it's just the weight and It's either high or low or in between, and it can change, but it it exists at a two-day-old company or a 200-year-old company. The third is sort of what I would call headwinds or tailwinds, which is that is it working on something that has better future prospects and is poorly described by the past? And then the fourth is political infanticide, which is how dysfunctionally fucked up is this company? And you can get that by looking at things like Glassdoor, 
listening to the political correctness of the CEO in their earnings calls or in more candid situations, trying to get a read on their body language. In my opinion, those four things comprise success. Because if you find a company with great product market fit, who have relatively good tailwinds, a high integrity CEO and team with very low politics, I mean, you have incredible, incredible opportunities. And I know this is going to sound crazy, but like, you know, when we underwrote Tesla, we thought that. When we underwrote Amazon, we thought that. Some of our best public market investments were those companies. When we underwrote Slack, we thought that. When we underwrote Relativity Space, we thought that. Those are private market investments that are multi-billion dollar outcomes for us. So I think it's always the same four weights. It's about your judgment about what the weights are. And so in this particular example with SC Emerging Managers, walk me through those four levers and what you see as the weights in the environment that you're entering. I think that the product market fit is very high. And what I mean by that is that I think that there is always going to be a dynamic where a small percentage of stocks generate the overwhelming majority of returns. And so it is a selection exercise. So by being in the nature of picking, I think we have a very good product market fit. I'm not going to say that we're going to be successful because that's a second weight. But I do think that in terms of what is needed in the market to win, we built the right mousetrap. Now the question is, are the administrators of that mousetrap the right people? But we are going to be picking. We're going to be picking our best version. Those 10 emerging managers, the next 10, the next 10, they're all going to be trying to give their interpretation of what is that small 10% of outlying companies that generate 90% of the returns. So I think the product market fit piece is high. Then there is what's in our control, which is the integrity of the manager and the management. And there, I think that we're going to try to over-optimize to people that we think are extremely high integrity, that as I said earlier, have these eclectic, diverse backgrounds such that when they are put together, they'll have respect and empathy for different people and help other people with that blind spot and tendency to revert compulsively to those past behaviors. In terms of headwinds versus tailwinds, to be honest with you, that's the biggest risk in this business, I think. I don't know what the weight of that is, and that's not really in our control. And the headwinds and tailwinds is really going to be a psychological output of the individual managers and how they are taught and how they use each other as a psychological help. And then the fourth one is I think that we can optimize for an apolitical environment. So I think three of the four weights are quite high. And I think the fourth is an uh, unknown unknown because it's sort of something that's not in our control, but we can figure out over time. So I tend to think that this business has a real chance of success. When you put it in the context of capital markets in particular, curious how you think about both, I guess, product market fit and prevailing wins, the former relative to other competitors and meaning lots of investment products, active management under pressure, and then the second, as much capital market pricing. Well, just on the latter point, I think that incredible opportunities abound in a world of zero rates because it forces you to have a very, very unique viewpoint on future returns. 
it is somewhat of a much easier job when the risk-free rate is between 6 and 10% to just check out. You can be lazy. And in laziness, you can find more obvious cash-flowing businesses and then trade them against that risk-free rate. When rates are zero, there are so many businesses that are just unfortunately relatively worthless. And so you are forced to be imaginative and creative. You're forced to understand technology more, right? Because technology is all about the compounding rate of its capability, meaning how is Okta compounding its single sign-on platform? I mean, what does that even mean? It's much easier to say, how is Occidental Petroleum compounding its capital investment into the number of wells? That's so much easier to answer. How fast is Atlassian's open source architecture generating scale? What the fuck are you talking about? How do you reduce that into a number? Where is that in cell D38 in your model? So it forces an extreme amount of creativity that otherwise isn't required when risk-free rates are high. The first part was relative to competitors. So there are a lot of really smart people out doing this, right? I think that we have the single biggest differentiator is that we're trying to build a community and that we give you an audited track record. And I think when you compare that to other alternatives, if this business model is successful, it'll be because of those two things. People really, really value the community. And then a small percentage of them also value the audited track record. As you roll this back up into social corp, what are you thinking about the continuing efforts that you're looking to make at that social corp level? I think that there are three business lines that are pretty ready for prime time. One is around climate change, which I just think is just crucial. There's an enormous amount of work also to be done in education. I think that we're going to rip the Band-Aid off now, and we're going to move to a much more ROI, measurement-oriented way of valuing education. And so I think you're going to overturn a trillion-dollar economy. I also think that's going to happen in healthcare. So the three areas where I'm very focused on making sure that we are allocating an enormous amount of time learning are those three areas. And so social capital can start to generate or continue to generate 30 40% returns We're going to be in a position to put billions of dollars a year in the ground and buy businesses and integrate them together in these three critical parts of economic GDP and infrastructure and control some really critical resources for the future. How do you view that level of the balance sheet? Operating companies that we can own forever, that generate cash flow that we can then reinvest back in social capital but that is advancing a worldview that we believe in. Like, for example, in climate change, one of the most interesting things that I believed in for a while, and I've talked about this publicly around Tesla, is that we are going to disrupt utilities. Because if you can have residential solar combined with residential storage, combined with software that allows an individual person to very simply understand how much energy they've generated understand the economic value of that energy, and then contribute it back into the grid at times where you don't have to build peakers and you can do load smoothing, you're going to take a trillion dollars of power infrastructure and just incinerate it. And it's going to drive incredible numbers of bankruptcies amongst utilities. PG&E will have been the tip of the iceberg. 
you're going to see hundreds of billions of dollars of debt basically just go sideways. So it is incredibly, incredibly disruptive. And so, you know, I am very focused on buying businesses that I think will disrupt the utilities. How far off are we from seeing that in any kind of scale? One to three years. That's why I think like getting access to some of these things are really important. Now, do I want to own the battery storage technology? Not really. Do I want to own Resi Solar? Not really. Those are kind of meh businesses. But do I want to own infrastructure that is the software layer? Absolutely. Because that could be a very, very critical resource for the future. It could be. A different example is that if you think about what we've seen in terms of technological advancement from 2005 through 2011, in those six years, some critical ingredient technologies got to a certain amount of scale. Amazon AWS, Apple's iOS, and Google's Android. And if you think about the trillions of dollars of value that's been created, it's been enabled by those three layers of infrastructure. If you take that analogy and apply it to biotech, we're actually at a similar point because we are seeing now improvements in delivery mechanisms like CAR-T, in implementation mechanisms like CRISPR. And all of these things set us up, I think, for a renaissance in biotech. And so I would be very interested there in owning some very critical resources that I think will be very beneficial for the future. And so I want to buy operating companies that I think can generate large amounts of current cash flow by improving the state of the world, but then feed those back into social capital, who can then compound that money and give that back to social corp, who can then allocate that down into different parts of the ecosystem. So I have to ask, so you are building and buying private businesses. You are doing a whole bunch of stuff in the SPAC world and doing a couple of deals with big companies. You're building out this SC Emerging Managers. It's all going to roll up to Social Corp. How are you doing all this? To be honest, it's mostly thinking. The team is very small. I have five partners at work that I rely on. Some of them have been with me for 15 years. Some are more new, but they're all, going back to those weights, incredibly high integrity and apolitical. And so I don't know that everything we do will have great product market fit or will have tailwinds, but I'm starting with those two weights optimized. And then I have a partner who really is my co-pilot in all of these critical business decisions because she goes through her own set. She runs a very successful pharma company. So she's able to help me navigate my own issues and catch me because she knows me so well personally when my personal insecurities are driving bad business decisions. And I mean, you've probably gone through this in your life as well. That's the single biggest thing that if you can fix that leak, right? Like in, in poker, if you're a really good poker player, you describe your weaknesses as leaks. There's like a couple of leaks in my game, you know, like in certain situations, I respond poorly. But fixing that leak is a superpower. It just empowers you. And so I'm able to at least have these grandiose ambitions. I don't know if we'll pull it off, but because now I have six people in my life that I can really rely on in different ways. And how many people in total are there, as you describe it, in the social capital ecosystem? So then the company itself is about 30 people. We have a really dedicated 
group of folks in the middle office and back office. We have a young emerging group of two guys who I think are really incredible up-and-comers who I think can grow into these five guys in terms of their seniority. And so we're growing the team slowly, again, optimizing for apolitical people, super, super high integrity. And then I have partners. So on the IPO platform, I have two critical partners that I work with, Ian Osborne. He has an organization called Hedda Sophia and Connaught, great bankers. I have a partner in David Hermer at Credit Suisse on the IPO 2.0 platform. I have a partner in Adam Bain and Dick Costello on the IPO 2.0 platform. I'll do the same thing on the biotech side. I'd like to find a group of folks to partner with there. So the other thing that I've learned is that creating non-zero-sum outcomes is really healthy. You can come to a place in your life where you can say, I'm going to capture every single last dollar of profit here. Or you could say, you know, I'm going to be a little inefficient. And in that inefficiency, what you actually find is you aggregate a group of people who are deeply loyal, also apolitical, who then want to build the business because they also have so much ownership that they feel it. So I've been very lucky that I can work with those folks. Great. Chamath is amazing. So much to cover. But I think we should just turn to a couple of fun closing questions and go from there. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Poker. Hands down, I play No Limit Poker. So it's an incredible test of my psychological readiness and a test of my evolution as a human being, as a risk taker, as a risk manager. And so everything that I learn, I'm able to take into the field of poker and in an eight-hour session, I get a really good sense of where I am and how I'm tracking. So I love poker. What's your most important daily habit? Well, I exercise or I try to get some form of exercise every day. That's probably the most important daily habit that I have. And then the second one is that I always have dinner with my family. And we try to have lunch and breakfast as well. And it's an incredibly humbling moment because you take off all the armor and you're just a dad and your four kids think you're kind of a loser, it's about them. And then your partner thinks that she's had just as hard of a day as you, so shut the fuck up, stop complaining, and be present. And it's wonderful. What's your biggest pet peeve? I think that people hate in others what they hate in themselves. That's another thing that I've realized. And so when something upsets me about somebody, I really try to go back and figure out what is it about that that I'm expressing. And so there's a something that I've done from very early on, which was a coping mechanism, which is being evasive. I don't do it in my professional life. I'm actually known for being super candid, but I do do it still in my personal life where I don't confront people. And then when I find evasiveness in others, it drives me crazy. And so I'm learning to tell people honestly in my personal life something that's upsetting me so that it doesn't fester. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I think there's something about sacrifice. Look, my parents were very complicated, and I was very angry with them for a long time. But now I am very appreciative of what they did, because despite everything else, that I think it's none of us can really understand what it means to leave a home where you're raised, to move across the world, to some place where you don't really even speak language natively, you don't look native, and to try to build 
and raise a family and make the kids feel like that they belong and that they have a right to everything. It's incredibly hard. And so that level of sacrifice, I've never been forced to even confront in myself. And so despite all the dysfunction, I'm very thankful to them for that. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Everything comes from your psychological preparedness. And all of your psychological peaks and valleys come from your childhood. And if you have a barren toolbox, you just won't be prepared. And therapy is not a stigma. It's liberating and it's the most powerful thing I've ever done. And had I known that in my 20s, maybe having the courage to talk to somebody or in my 30s, I would have been a better friend, you know, a better husband, a better everything. Chamath is amazing. Thanks so much again for taking the time. Thanks, Ted. I really appreciate it. All right. We're going to go with just a few more questions and then for our uh, premium subs, and we'll go from there. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? My biggest blind spot is that I still have these inherent ideas of these weightings in a company in my mind. And sometimes I do confirmatory diligence to underwrite what I already believe. And that's one of these very, very pernicious things that if I don't slow things down and I stop myself from making decisions, I won't catch. And so one of the guardrails that I've developed for myself is whenever we're close to an investment decision, I really detach away from everybody else and I basically take an extra week and I delay the decision. And I try not to think about it for a couple of days and I think about it. Then I don't try not to think about it for a couple of days and I think about it. And there have been a few times where I've realized that I've just re-underwritten my own bias. And I've come back and I've had to restart the process again. And then three or four weeks later, I've come to a very different outcome. So it can be a very complicated process, but I really think that that's one of these very prickly issues that a lot of people suffer from that I do as well. What's your favorite book? It's called Fermat's Enigma. It's written by Simon Singh. There's an equation, Pythagorean theorem is x squared plus y squared equals z squared. And Fermat's Enigma says x to the n plus y to the n equals z to the n. And this is about trying to prove Fermat's last theorem, whether that's true or not, for all real numbers greater than one. So what was it about that that catches you? It's written like a spy novel, but it's about a mathematician trying to solve a math problem. It's just lovely. And I remember this book because I've read it twice So I haven't read it many times. But when I was a young person, I didn't really like have any passions. I didn't really like feel like I was really good at anything. And it made me fight back this bias where I thought math was uncool. And that was really important to me, future on in my life. That's great. All right. I got one more for you, Chamath. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? I know this is going to sound weird, but like I've made a ton of mistakes. One of the biggest ones was probably my speech at Stanford. You know, I gave a speech and it's gotten pretty famous and I kind of threw all of social media under the bus in 2016. And a lot of what I said came to pass, but it was a huge mistake, not because I was wrong. It was a mistake because it really came from my own insecurity and it came from fear and anxiety. And it came out as angry. And so in many ways, if you graph my personal evolution, actually, that was my low point. 
that was like you know within a few months of me getting separated and shutting down 1.0 of social capital and i regret not what i said but how i said it it was just so dripping with my own fear and anxiety but then i also give myself a break because like i got to love myself through those moments and i also think that person in that moment was just going through a lot of shit so i hear you Thanks again, Chamath. It was amazing. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 